So uh, it's good we're coming into some warmer uh, months here. I saw that the shaded people moved back toward the sun, which is wonderful. And if you get cold, I'm just going to give you permission right now. If you need to move your seat up and go to the sun, don't hesitate. Um, we want to be comfortable, but also, uh, you know, we want to hear from the Lord, and we don't want anything to distract us from that. So if you're feeling cold, don't be afraid to move your chair to the sun. Also, I just found out that the mechanical bull arrived already. So it's apparently some here. He's like, I'm here. I was like, where? And so a uh, mechanical bull is going to be probably set up right after church. If any, You know, I mean, young adults, we're going for it. But anyone else wants to try, hop on. Come on, let's do this. We'll have a little competition right after church. So um, I was trying to think about how preaching is like mechanical bull riding, but I couldn't come up with anything. So. <laughs> Uh, so let's open up our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, uh, where we picked, off, picked up uh, last week in verse 22, and um, really looking forward to this week and also next week in the Word. Um, we're moving closer and closer to the cross in the Gospel of Mark, and would that be true of our lives, that we would move closer to the cross of Jesus? And so Beginning now by reading in Mark chapter 8, verse 22, let's look into the word of God today to see what he wants us to, uh, to see and to perceive and to understand by faith. And so beginning now uh, with your Bibles open, Mark chapter 8, verse 22 says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. So Jesus and his disciples are on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, and they've been going across back and forth that big lake um, as they've been ministering throughout the various towns and villages. And Jesus has been preaching on the kingdom of God, and he has been performing miracles in his compassion and in his mercy. And this has already been met with opposition by the religious leaders of that day. Uh, and something that we've noticed is that even though the name of Jesus is spreading and the popularity of Jesus is rising, it seems that Jesus wants to keep things on the down low. And several times now we've heard Jesus tell people not to speak about his miraculous works. It's kind of interesting, right? Why is that, that Jesus does that? Well, Jesus was very intentional about how he portrayed his mission and his purpose upon the earth. And as I said at the start, that the gospel of Mark is moving toward the cross where Jesus died. And it's moving toward the resurrection where Jesus came alive. And the miracles that we've seen as they've been recorded in the gospel of Mark, they've been exciting. We've seen um, lame people walking, blind people seeing, fevers leaving. We've, we've seen uh, the demonically oppressed released by the power and the authority of Jesus. And these miracles that we've been looking at throughout our study of the Gospel of Mark, they've been so exciting and we've learned so much from them. However, there is still more that Jesus is going to do. And the greatest miracle is still to come. See, the greatest miracle being that Jesus, the Son of God, died on a cross, 
but was raised from the dead by the Spirit to the glory of the Father. And we are now offered life that is eternal when we see that by faith. And so everything is moving toward this point. Uh, Jesus really wants us to see this gospel, this good news by faith. And today, we're going to look at a great moment in the lives of the disciples where Jesus is revealing this truth for them to see. And so how fitting it is that right there in verse 22, we saw that a blind man is brought to Jesus in this critical moment of time where Jesus really wants his disciples to see him for who he really is. And so there's this man, he's blind, physically blind, and Jesus is going to heal him. And there's some great lessons that we can draw this morning uh, from this healing. And, and, you know, lessons about, you know, physical healing. But we're going to look at it more from the standpoint of how Jesus heals people of a spiritual condition, which is spiritual blindness. And many people face this spiritual blindness. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we read about this condition. Paul writes that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. That Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. Yet he goes on to say that as soon as the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shines on the minds of unbelievers, that there is a veil that is removed, that sight is restored, and that salvation in Jesus is received by grace through faith. Amen? And that is the work that Jesus does in in bringing sight to the blind. And the message to bring sight to the blind is that Jesus Christ was crucified. We preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we believe that it is that message that will cause throughout whole regions for people to be healed of this condition of spiritual blindness. That is the work that we do as ambassadors of reconciliation. We believe that veils will be removed, that blind people will see Jesus because of the cross. And so look again at the word of God in verse 23 where it says this, He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? You know, Jesus has been referred to already as the great physician. And like a good doctor, he takes his patient and he cares for his patient in how he needs to be taken care of. And so Jesus takes the man by the hand, and I I love just that little detail. You know, Jesus took him by the hand. He led him to where it was that Jesus wanted to take him, and that's really how Jesus leads us that we need to trust Jesus as he takes our hands, that he's going to lead us to the places where he wants to take us. And where did Jesus take this man? It said that he took him outside the village. Now, we can't know for certain why that was, but my best guess is that it, it just goes along with the fact that Jesus at this point is trying to minimize unnecessary distractions. 
he's going to go privately outside the village and he's going to perform this miracles. Others have suggested that the reason why Jesus took the man outside the village of Bethsaida is because the people of Bethsaida had already hardened their hearts toward Jesus with unbelief. And we're told in the Gospels that Jesus was not able to do many miracles in regions where there was hardened unbelief. And may that never be so for the Palestrians Peninsula. May that never be so for the South Bay that, that Jesus wouldn't be able to do many mighty miracles because we are hardened in unbelief. Never want to hear that Jesus will go outside this region. We want him to be in this region doing those works, so we need to trust and believe in him by faith. And so for whatever reason, they're outside the village, and Jesus is going to heal him. And so what does the great physician decide to do? He decides to spit in his eyes. <laughs> like That doesn't sound like a very good doctor. <laughs> Any doctors in their house are like, I don't know that that's uh, very sanitary. But we've already seen Jesus do this, where he spit in his hand and grabbed the mute man's tongue and said, be open. And the man was able to speak plainly. And now he's going to spit in this man's eyes. And people have asked me why I think that the Lord used spit for healings. And I don't have a straight answer. Because really the Bible doesn't give a straight answer for why Jesus used spit. But I like the fact that Jesus didn't always heal in the same way. You ever pick up on that? You can't pin Jesus on one methodology of healing. He healed in all sorts of ways. And I like that because, um, you know, I like that Jesus does some things that seem rather strange in my mind. All I know is that Jesus knew what the man needed and it brought results. And so, we won't always understand all the reasons for why God works in the ways that he works. And yet for me, I find that keeps me having a healthy sense that, that God is God and I am not. When I don't always understand why Jesus does things in a certain way, but for some reason he spits in his eyes and he says, do you see anything? Let's look at verse 24 to find out. It says, and he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Now, this is a miracle that stands out as being unique among the other miracles of Jesus. Because this is the only miracle that is recorded where healing comes in stages. You could say that this was a process healing, that after spitting in his eyes and laying his hands on the man, Jesus asked him this question, do you see anything? And we know that Jesus often asked questions in order to draw faith out of people. And so he's asking him this question in order to draw faith out of him. And you know, this story reminds me of a famous hymn writer. Her name was Fanny Crosby. And Fanny was blind and she lost her sight when she was only six weeks old. And one day a well-meaning preacher was talking to Fanny and said how he, how he thought, man, what a gifted woman you are. And yet he pitied her because, because she was blind. And he said, you know, have you ever hoped that perhaps 
Jesus would heal you of your blindness? And Fanny responded to him by saying, Do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition, it would have been that I was born blind? And intrigued by this, she continues to say, Because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. How good is that? I mean, that's seeing, if I've ever seen it. What she's saying is, you know, since she was born at such a young age, or born blind and pretty much born blind, six weeks old, no recollection of ever seeing anything in her entire life, she obviously has gone to be with the Lord. The first thing she ever looked at was the face of Jesus. It's incredible. And so Jesus asked this man who was blind, he said, do you see anything? I don't know if that man was born blind, but perhaps the first thing he saw once his eyes were open was the face of his, his Savior, Jesus. The man could only make out at that point when he asked the question, what looked to him like men as trees walking? And there's many ideas about what that could possibly mean, but I just think it means that his vision was still blurry, similar to the vision of the disciples at this point in a spiritual sense. It was still blurry. They still weren't seen clearly. But for this man, he saw men as trees walking. There wasn't a full physical healing yet. And so have a look at verse 25 and 26 to see what Jesus continues to do. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home saying, do not even enter the village. This healing came in two parts, in stages, you could say. And make no mistake, it's not that Jesus was lacking in power to heal. You know, Jesus' healing batteries weren't running low. And he's like, oh, wait, you're not healed all the way. Let me try that again. Jesus was purposeful in how he healed this man. And it was by the power of the Spirit and by the authority of the Father that Jesus healed his, this man. And he was going to heal him fully from physical blindness. And he does. And yet, in the wisdom of Jesus, he does it in stages. He healed in a process rather than in an instance. And I believe that this illustrates how God sometimes heals spiritual blindness. Remember, we're talking about how this connects to our spiritual blindness because there are many people that I've met who were healed in an instant from their spiritual blindness. There are others, myself included, who were healed of their spiritual blindness in more of a process. You know what I mean? You see, some people can tell of the exact date, time, location of their salvation, while others would say that it came over the course of perhaps days, maybe weeks, months, or even years. For me, I was 17 years old when I walked into Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. And I went in the youth room there, and I saw a half pipe, which was amazing. And then a rock wall, also amazing. And a bunch of pretty girls. I was like... I see men as trees walking. (laughs) 
But really, I, I had already had some seeds of the gospel planted in my heart prior to that moment. But all I can say is that over the course of about a month or so, that as I continued to go to that church and as I heard the word of God preached, as I heard the gospel proclaimed, I came to realize my sin and my need for a savior. I couldn't give you an exact date or time of my salvation, and yet God led me by his hand through the process of believing in Jesus by faith that he died on a cross for my sins and that he rose on the third day to give me life. And that I discovered that Jesus was worthy to lead my life. What I know is that I was blind, but now I see, but that for me it happened more as a process. Perhaps today is the day that you would say, that you have felt Jesus leading you by the hand. He's touched your eyes and there's been something about Jesus that has stirred up your vision. You would say that it's still blurry. You don't see everything clearly. You still have some questions. You see men as trees walking and it's intriguing to you. But you wouldn't yet say that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. But would today be the day that you would see clearly? Would today be the day where Jesus, yes, he's been leading you by the hand, you felt him in this process, but would today be the day where he touches your eyes and they are opened and that you would see Jesus for who he really is, that he is Lord, Savior, healer, and friend. I love what Chuck Smith used to say. He's the founding pastor of Calvary Chapel. And he used to say that, you know, he believed in Jesus as a young child. Many people can say that if you've grown up in the church, you would say you don't really, um, you've just kind of always believed, right? And he would say this, I can't remember my salvation experience but I will never forget my grace experience. See, Jesus doesn't just save us and then his work is over with us. Um, We're all in a process with Jesus. We are all in the process of Jesus revealing himself to us that we would see him ever so clearly. And so that's where the disciples are at in this moment. They're in process. They're learning to see who Jesus really is, and what he really came to do. And so continuing on in verse 27, let's read where it says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And leaving Bethsaida, Jesus goes with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, which was a hub of politics and culture and religion. Caesarea Philippi was like a melting pot where people in those villages believed all different sorts of things. You would say, um, in fact, it's probably similar to something like the South Bay where people can pick and choose what they want to believe, that they could take a little bit here, a little bit there, kind of like a salad bar of religion, and and just choose what you like, piece something together that works for you. That's like the region of Caesarea Philippi. 
And so Jesus is with his disciples there, and he asks them this question, who do people say that I am? And look, Jesus wasn't trying to get a pulse on his popularity. Jesus uh, wasn't insecure about his identity, hoping that people were saying nice things about him. And if you and I are honest, we probably think a little bit too much about that. But Jesus was not concerned with his reputation among people. Because the identity of Jesus was already settled. The identity of Jesus was settled when the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. That's all Jesus needed to hear. His identity was settled at that point. He's not worried about what people think about him. The reason why Jesus was asking this first question, who do people say that I am, was so that he could lead into a follow-up question to find out if his disciples are seen clearly yet. And so the disciples answer in verse 28, they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and the others, one of the prophets. So these three ideas that were floating around at the time of who Jesus was, that he was John the Baptist, Elijah, or just one of the prophets. Well, we know that all of those are incorrect. But why were people thinking that these are the people that Jesus was? Let's look at each one. So John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the most prominent national religious leader of that day. He made a huge splash in the Jewish religion. He came right before Jesus, and he was baptizing people in the Jordan River for the forgiveness, for the preparation of of welcoming Jesus. He was a forerunner to Christ. We know uh, in our study from Mark that Herod uh, held this belief that Jesus was John the Baptist, but that was because Herod was paranoid and guilty for having beheaded John. So Jesus is not John, clearly. And then some people thought that he was Elijah, you know, the goat, the greatest of all time prophets. I mean, that's really what Elijah was. He was a prophet where he did some pretty spectacular miracles in Israel. You guys remember the time when he was on Mount Carmel and he called fire down from heaven to consume the altar in a competition against the prophets of Baal. I mean, that's pretty, that's a showdown. And Jesus has already done some pretty amazing miracles. The interesting thing is that because Elijah didn't have a physical death but was taken up into heaven, some people thought, well, maybe it's that Jesus has returned, Elijah has returned. Or that Elijah is somehow kind of a reincarnation, or Jesus a reincarnation or something of Elijah. But still no. Maybe Jesus is one of the prophets. Jesus was certainly a prophet. In fact, Jesus is a prophet, a priest, and a king. And yet, Jesus is not just one of the prophets. One out of many. He is the one that all the prophets were foretelling about. Everybody was prophesying about Jesus to come. We read in Hebrews that in times past, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So Jesus isn't just one of many prophets. He is the prophet. He is the one. And so even still, they were incorrect about his identity. Each one of these ideas about him 
were inaccurate to who Jesus really is. And there are still many inaccurate ideas floating around about who Jesus is. Maybe you've heard them. Maybe you've believed them. I'm telling you today that if you want to know the real Jesus, look to his word. God has revealed Jesus plainly to us. You just have to pick up the Bible and read it. This is God's self-revelation. I've said it before. Everything that you want to know about God is in here. And everything you want to know about yourself is in here. You don't have to look further. And so there are all sorts of ideas that people have about who Jesus is. And so where are you picking up your ideas about Jesus? Are you picking up your ideas about Jesus from other people or from God's self-revelation? If you want to know who Jesus is and not simply what other people say about him, let's look to the word. And thankfully today, we're in a passage of scripture that tells us who he is. Verse 29, he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Now this verse is the linchpin of the gospel. Everything has been leading up to this and everything flows from this. That Jesus, that his identity has now been clearly spoken. That the disciples got it. They have heard his teaching. They have seen his miracles. This has been a two-year process. They've watched the character on display, the character of Jesus on display. God has been revealed to them. They've been through some pretty hard moments together. They've missed it a lot of times. You know, bread? What bread? (laughs) We've been seeing the last couple of weeks how the disciples have been missing it. And yet at this point, Jesus asked this question point blank, Who do you say that I am? This is the most important question that the disciples have been asked at this point. And this is the most important question that you will ever be asked. Who do you say that I am? It's more important than what college do you want to go to? What job do you want to take up? It's even more important than the question, will you marry me? This is the most important question that anyone could ever be asked. It's the most important question that everyone has to answer. And it is this question, who do you say that Jesus is? It'll prepare you for life's most difficult questions. It will help you make every other decision in your life. It'll give you peace, joy, and hope through life if you answer this question rightly. Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds first. He says, the Christ. And he answered correctly. Jesus is the Christ. Christ is the Greek translation of the word Messiah. Translated in English, it is the anointed one. That is what Jesus is. He is the anointed one of God. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. He is the Christ, the Messiah. He's the savior of the world. And Peter saw him clearly that day. And have you seen Jesus in that way? I mean, how would you answer that question if you were asked? Imagine Jesus standing right in front of you And saying, who do you say that I am? Now, 
Jesus isn't standing right in front of us. You might think, well, it was easy for Peter to answer that question. Jesus right, wasn't right there, but I, I, I haven't seen him. See, Peter still had to answer that question in faith. You can have an intellectual assent to the existence of Jesus, but he still had to answer that question in faith. And by faith, to see Christ, to see Jesus as the Christ is totally different to say, yeah, Jesus is the Christ, sure. Now, that's who he is. And by placing faith in the Christ, allowing his identity to become your identity. Because look, guys, if you get the identity of Jesus wrong, then it's going to affect your identity. If you get the identity of Jesus wrong, it's going to affect your identity now. But you know what it'll affect even more so? More importantly, if you get his identity wrong, it will affect your eternal salvation. This question has eternal ramifications. And so in Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, verse 17, we're given one other detail about this encounter with Jesus. After responding and saying, you are the Christ, Jesus affirms Peter and says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And what Jesus is saying here is that Peter didn't pick up on this because other people were telling him about it. Peter didn't understand this based on his own understanding. Peter was able to identify Jesus as the Christ by revelation. The Father revealed Jesus, the Son of God, as the Christ to Peter. And the same has to be for you and me. If we want to really know Jesus as the Christ by faith, we need that revelation from God. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. It has to come by revelation. And thanks be to God that he loves to give revelation. Look, he's not hiding this from you. He wants you to see it clearly. And so today, will you believe what is true about Jesus? Do you want to know what is true about him? Then read the next verse. Literally, read the next verse and you will see the revelation of God coming to you about who Jesus really is, who he is and what he came to do. You ready? Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. That's as plain as it needs to be for anyone to believe in Jesus. See, there's nothing hidden here. The most fundamental parts of the gospel are right there for us to see. That the Son of Man came to suffer many things, be rejected and killed and raised from the dead. That is the gospel in its most fundamental parts. And and this is the culminating point of what's happening in the gospel, where this has just been revealed plainly for all to see. But in the same breath of conversation, Peter didn't like what was happening. Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh, wait, hold on. 
come here, Jesus. He pulls him to the side. This is flying in the face of Peter's idea of what the Messiah should be. The, the Jews at this time were thinking that the Messiah was going to be a conquering king that would overthrow the oppressive Roman government, that he'd come in and establish the right to rule as the Jewish people. And this was flying absolutely in the face of everything that Peter had for messianic expectation. And so in verse 32 and 33, he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. I don't know anyone who's ever read this part and and not thought, whoa. (laughs) You know, things just escalated pretty quickly there. So there's no doubt that Peter has received revelation from God moments before. That the Father has revealed the identity of, of Jesus. But how quickly did the flesh rise up in Peter where he gives puffed up with knowledge and pride because knowledge puffs up and Peter thinks that he knows what needs to happen with this whole Messiah business. And so he pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. And what does he rebuke him for? He rebukes him because he said that he would suffer many things, be rejected and killed, but that he would rise on the third day. Peter heard suffering, rejection, and dying, and he didn't want any of it. You see, people want a savior, but they don't want it through suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. Yet that is how God chose to do it. You cannot have salvation apart from suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. That is the way of Jesus. And as we see next week, that is the way of the disciple. If anyone desires to come after me, let him take up his cross. That means dying. That means suffering with Jesus. That means partnering in the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. Because salvation comes at a cost. That discipleship has a cost. And we must consider the cost of following Jesus. And Peter didn't know this yet. He heard death, suffering, being killed. He heard those words and he, he didn't want that. That wasn't going with his idea of what salvation meant. And yet that is salvation according to God. Salvation has to come through those things. And so Peter rebukes Jesus, but Jesus rebukes him right back. The two of them are off to the side. And, you know, Peter pulled him aside for that little private conversation. And you have to visualize it is that he goes with Peter to the side and they're talking together. And then Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. And as soon as he hears all this rebuke, he turns around, literally twists around, so that Peter is at his backside looking at the back of Jesus. And Jesus is now looking at the rest of his disciples. Because Peter, who was just the rock that confessed Christ, he was an example to all those other disciples. It was a beautiful thing. Peter was leading the rest of the disciples in who Jesus was. He was the rock. But now as he's rebuking Jesus, he's no longer the rock. He is the stumbling block. And so Jesus, with Peter behind his back, looking at the rest of his disciples, Jesus sees this and he's so, um, he's so overcome with the fact that what Peter is saying is not the gospel. 
that he doesn't want suffering. He doesn't want death. He doesn't want resurrection. And he's looking at his disciples. He's saying, but that's how I'm going to save these guys. And so he says to Peter, who's behind him, get behind me, Satan. Because what Peter was doing back here is he was trying to have the gospel without the cross. He was trying to have salvation without the fellowship of suffering. And Jesus looked at the rest of the disciples and said, I don't want anybody to be stumbled into believing any other gospel that doesn't involve my death, burial, and resurrection. And as we'll see next week, you can't have that in Jesus if you're not willing to take up your own cross. To receive your own rejection. To die to yourself and to be raised with Jesus. See, Jesus got so intense because that was demonic doctrine. That was demonic doctrine. Salvation offered in any other way other than the suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection is not the gospel. It is man-made thinking, or worse, it is doctrine of demons. And so, Peter, not realizing that he was speaking on behalf of Satan, I don't think Peter wittingly knew that he was speaking for Satan. And so many people, guys, today are unwittingly speaking for Satan. Unwittingly speaking for Satan. And may we not be those people. I love a song that Rob quoted to me when we were talking about this passage. That any other kind of gospel that doesn't have the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is nothing but a bloodless stick. See, Jesus bled and died on a cross because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. You cannot have the gospel without the suffering of Christ. So if you want to know the Christ, it has to be by faith, which comes by revelation of God, and it has to include these elements of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. We thank you for the gospel that has been proclaimed plainly today for all to hear. And God, we ask, Lord, that spiritual blindness would be lifted from this region because of these words, because we would be, um, we would have these words flowing from our lips. Lord, I know that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God, and I thank you that your word was proclaimed today. And there may be people here today who have been in something of a process of coming to believe in you, Jesus, as Lord, Savior, healer, and friend. And I pray, Jesus, today that the veil would be removed, that that blindness that Satan has tried to put on the minds of unbelievers would be lifted because the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus would shine right now and people would see clearly that the greatest miracle would happen this morning which is that people would be saved, that people's eternity would be secured because you secured it, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.